Welcome, everybody. So glad to have you here this brisk December morning. And uh, would you take a moment, please, and stand and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 44 this morning. Genesis 44. If you're here without a Bible, there are some men coming down the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just wave at them, get their attention, we'll get a Bible to you this morning so you can follow along. And uh, while you're finding your place in Genesis 44, moms and dads, lads and lasses, we're going to have a special children's choir for our Christmas service. And if you want to get in on that action, today is your last day to sign up your kiddos for that Christmas choir. So out on the table, there's a sheet, put your name down there. And uh, Alyssa will be sending out details later this week with rehearsal times and songs, etc. Costume, choreography, the whole nine. So I'm just kidding. I don't know what the costume or choreography plans are. But anyway, I could tell you a story. Well, what the, you know, ask me about it some other time. Genesis 44. We're going to pick it up beginning in verse 1, where it says this. When his brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to the palace manager. Fill each of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry and put each man's money back into his sack. Then put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack, along with the money for his grain. So the manager did just as Joseph had instructed him. The brothers, they were up at dawn and they were sent on their journey with their loaded donkeys. But when they had gone only a short distance and were barely out of the city, Joseph said to his palace manager, chase after them and stop them. And when you catch up with them, ask them, why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Why have you stolen my master's cup, which he uses to predict the future? What a wicked thing you have done. When the palace manager caught up with the man, Uh, He spoke to them as he had been instructed. What are you talking about? His brothers responded. We are your servants and would never do such a thing. Funny statement coming from a group of guys who sold their brothers into slavery and did all sorts of other things. Like, impugn our honor? How dare you? Verse 8. Didn't we return the money that we found in our sacks? We brought it back all the way from the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If you find his cup with any one of us, let that man die. And the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. That's fair, the man replied, but the, only the one who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go free. They all quickly, they took their sacks from the backs of their donkeys. They opened them. The palace manager searched the brothers' sacks from the oldest to the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. When the brothers saw this, they tore their clothing in despair. Then they lo- uh, loaded their donkeys again and returned to the city. Joseph was still in his palace when Judah and his brothers arrived and they fell to the ground before him. What have you done, Joseph demanded? Don't you know that a man like me can predict the future? Judah answered, oh my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. My Lord, we have all returned to be your slaves, all of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. No, Joseph said, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. Let's pray. So Lord, would you bless your word as we seek you in it this morning and help us to see ourselves, to see this world and to see you in true light. That you would shed heaven's light on our souls, on our surroundings and on our savior so that this morning we could rightly understand more of who you are 
and how we fit into this world and what it means to be made by the God whose wisdom and love put the stars and the universe into existence, the one who put his son on the cross to be our savior. Help us to understand more of what it means to be called by the God who made us into real relationship. That this morning we might leave here further transformed into the people that you're making us to be. You have heaven-sized plans attached to each one of our lives. And this morning we want to understand more of what that means. And so as we seek you in your word, would you give us ears to hear and give me lips to speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. So this morning, as we continue our study of the life of Joseph, we come to a scene in his life that touches on a, an experience that is core and universal to the human experience. Something we see in this passage touches every single person's life on this planet, and it's tied to one of the mega themes of the Bible. One of the core messages of Christianity uh, is touched on here in this text Uh, Let's bring you up to speed. Here we are 20 years later after Joseph had been sold by his 10 older brothers into slavery, where he was essentially kidnapped and taken into a foreign land, made to be a slave, where he's falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, forgotten for years, but then in in an unbelievable turn of events, finds himself the second most powerful man in the known world as Pharaoh's right-hand man. Uh, God had gifted him with wisdom and with gifts that God would use to spare not just Egypt, but the known world from suffering through what would be seven years of terrible famine. As that famine began to spread throughout the land, Joseph's family uh, was beginning to suffer from that. And so Jacob, Joseph's dad, sent his 10 older brothers to Egypt to go buy grain from this guy in Egypt who is saving the world. And so his brothers show up the first time. And Joseph, uh, you know, he had, a, he had an experience. He had a moment where he just threw his brothers into prison for three days, you know. When your brothers do something like this, too, I guess you get the, you know, you get to send the go to jail, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Like, just pass that right to them. And so they go, they sit in jail for three days, and while he cools off, he pulls them out. And it's very clear, Joseph, from that point forward, began really testing his brothers, there's no um, question that at, at this moment, Joseph is going to take care of his dad. He's going to take care of his younger brother. He's going to take care of his family. But what is the fate of these brothers who are the direct result? They are the direct reason why his life has been, for so ma- in so many ways, a living hell for the better part of 20 years. So uh, he begins this series of tests. And then the first test, uh, he accuses them of being spies He holds one of the brothers, Simeon, as a prisoner, and he sends them back to Jacob and says, I want you to go back to your your father's house and show me that you're not spies by bringing your younger brother to me, right? So they leave Simeon, they go back to Jacob with grain, and uh, they, they, uh, they, on their way back to their father, they open up those sacks and they find out that their money had been put back in their sacks. (gasps) How are they going to explain this? Now it looks like not only have they taken... Uh, you know, grain, but also their own money back from Egypt. This powerful man thinks they're spies. Like, what are you going to do about this? They get back to Jacob. They explain the whole thing. said, you got to let Benjamin come with us. Uh, Jacob delays for a time, but it takes the food uh, becoming short again before he will let his little son go with these brothers. Uh, Ultimately, they return to Egypt for a second time. And it's that second scene that we're in the middle of here this morning. Uh, This time when they return with Benjamin, Joseph, who again knows who these guys are, but they have no idea that they're looking at their brother, 
when he sees Benjamin, he's overwhelmed. And uh, just uh, there's a total shift in his demeanor. He ends up throwing them a huge party, right? Talk about, could you imagine being the brothers? Like the first time you show up at this guy's place, you end up in prison for three days. The next time he's throwing you a party, you're just like, this guy is crazy, right? And so um, at this point in the story, everyone's had a, a great night's sleep. They've eaten. They've, they've had this great time together. And uh, that's where we pick it up here this morning. So first, we're going to look at this scene, and then we'll unpack this big idea uh, that, that's touched on here in this scene. So first, let's look at verse 1, where we, we find out more about Joseph's next test for his brothers. Joseph's next test for his brothers. Verse 1, when his brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to his palace manager. So here's his evil plot. He says, fill each one of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry. And again, put everyone's money back in their sack. Then put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack, along with the money for his grain. And so the manager did as Joseph instructed him. And so that night, while the men were sleeping, Joseph and his palace manager put together this scheme. And it's clearly a test. And here's the test. Uh, 20 years ago, these 10 men took advantage of their younger brother, who was favored by their father, Joseph. Joseph was a favored son. He was the youngest of those brothers. He was loved dearly by his dad, and the brothers hated him for it. And when they had the opportunity to take advantage of a situation, they abandoned and betrayed their brother uh, into the hands of these slave traders. Joseph, in this scene, is essentially trying to recreate that exact same scene. Here's how it looks. Similar to Joseph being thrown into a pit, Joseph was going to put Benjamin, the youngest son, the favored brother, the one who was dearly loved by their father, right? He was going to put him, Benjamin, in a terrible place where without the brothers doing anything, Benjamin was going to be separated from his father and, and, and spend his life in the land of Egypt or worse. The test that, J- that Joseph was giving to his brothers was this. Would they betray Benjamin just like they had betrayed Joseph? Do you see the test? All right. Verse 3. The brothers were up at dawn having partied. They want to go home. They get out of Egypt before this crazy guy changes his mind and they end up in prison again. And it says they were sent on their journey with their loaded donkeys. I like how one commentator put it. He said, just as they were congratulating themselves on being able to leave Egypt safely with Simeon and Benjamin and all of that food, then their world all of a sudden fell in. Their world's about to collapse in a big way. And I like how the commentator writes it. He says, it was a collapse of a world that was built on hatred, on lies, and deception. Verse 4, when they had gone only a short distance and were barely out of the city, Joseph says to his palace manager, go get them. Chase after them, he says, and stop them. And when you catch them, ask them, why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Why have you stolen my master's cup, which he uses to predict the future? What a wicked thing you have done. And so he sends him out, the palace manager, to catch these boys. And he catches up to them in verse 6. It says, when the palace manager caught up with the men, he spoke to them as he had been instructed, accuses them of stealing the cup. Verse 7. What are you talking about? The brothers responded. We are your servants. It would never do such a thing. And it is so funny. I mean, these are the guys. Remember, these are the guys who they've killed an entire village full of men. Uh, they've done like terrible, wicked things. These are not like the, uh, these are not the Boy Scouts, right? These are some shady characters. And they're just sitting here like, how dare you insult our honor? 
Verse 8, they say, didn't we return the money we found in our sacks? We brought it back from all the way from the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If this cup, that you, if, if you find his cup with any one of us, let that man die and all the rest of us, uh, my Lord, will be your slaves. Now, wouldn't you think, you know, you've been in this place before, haven't you? If you're these guys, uh, the last time you went to Egypt, you came back with sack and a little something, something extra. Like you came back with your grain and your money in it. Like, how did that happen? And now here they are showing up. They're saying, open up your sacks. Wouldn't you stop to say, uh, wait a minute. But they're just like very boldly, very ignorantly. You know, if you find something amongst us, you kill us. Right? Verse 10, he, the, the palace manager says, that's fair. But only the one who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you can go free. So verse 11, they all quickly untook their sacks, right? Expecting to see nothing but grain. But it says that uh, as they, they pulled them for the backs of their donkeys, they opened them. Now, it doesn't tell us in the text, but they had to have seen the money. Remember, there are 11 boys, 11 grown men at this time that are traveling. And so the oldest among them, Reuben, he pulls open his sack and he sees, oh, no, there's my money. And then the next brother, oh, no, there's my money. Can you imagine what that would have, what it would have felt like? And everyone's saying, oh, what, what have we gotten into the middle of? And then the worst thing that could possibly happen happens. In verse 12, it says, the palace manager searched the brother's sacks from the oldest to the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. This is the ball drop. This is the, the world has now imploded. And so they, uh, they head back to Egypt, verse 13. When the brothers saw this, they tore their clothing in despair. They loaded their donkeys again. They returned to the city. Joseph was still in his palace when Judah and his brothers arrived. Chris, in his teaching last week, mentioned that Judah is taking a place of prominence now in the family, and you can see it here. Judah and his brothers. He was not the oldest, but he is clearly taking a place of leadership within his family. Ironically, he was the one who came up with the genius idea of selling Joseph into slavery. (laughs) Uh, And now here he is, in many ways, colored a very different man. Uh, Judah is... The way he's described here, it's as if he is taking responsibility. He is owning this and saying, come what may, I'm going to lead my brothers into this battle. I'm going to lead my brothers into this terrible scene that's about to unfold. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch what happens in Judah's life. For, for more, come back next week. Um, he takes center stage next week in the teaching. But uh, for now, let's pick it up again in verse 14. As Judah and the brothers arrived, they fell down on the ground before Joseph Joseph replies, he says, what have you done? Don't you know that a man like me can predict the future? So he's totally just messing with their heads. You can't blame him. Verse 16, Judah answers, oh my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? Here's the phrase we're going to lock in on this morning. Judah's words, God is punishing us for our sins. One uh, John Gibson in his commentary on this passage, he writes this way. He says, this was not a guilt of the moment. They weren't just sad that they got caught in something. This was guilt of their whole lives being exposed. This was a moment in which the brothers, in all of their scheming, and all of their lying, and all of their deception, in all of their greed and bitterness, were now face-to-face with the consequences of their actions. And there's no more lies. There's no more scheming. They've just... They've come to a place where they have to own it, and they're owning it. Verse 16, my Lord, we have all returned to be your slaves, all of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. Joseph says, no, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. 
The rest of you may go back to your Father in peace. Tune in next week as we continue our series. So we're going to continue in the story next week. But for this morning, I want to just touch on, focus on this one thought from this scene. These men, when they are face to face with this terrible scene of events around them, are not thinking about the injustice of being falsely accused. They had, no, they had done no wrong, right? They didn't steal the money. They didn't take this cup. They're not here defending themselves anymore. They see in the circumstances around them something far more substantial than uh, the schemes of a man in Egypt. They see behind this God punishing them for their sins. And that's what I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about this morning. You know, our past misdeeds have a way of haunting us, don't they? The things that we've said that we ought not to have said, the things that we've done that we ought not to have done. No matter how we try, it's terrible the way our brains work. I have a really hard time remembering fun things or people's names, but I can remember the terrible things that I've done. I can remember the people I've hurt. I can remember the things for which now I am ashamed. Um, These brothers, they had certainly had this experience. 20 years later, here they are. And the moment their world starts to unravel, where do their minds go? They go to 20 years ago when they had sold their brother into uh, an unknown and terrible fate. In uh, chapter 42, when they were first brought before Joseph, again, they had no idea who he was. They were falsely accused as spies. They were speaking to Joseph through an interpreter, and they said amongst themselves, it says in chapter 20, or 42, verse 21, speaking among themselves, they said, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. And then years later, as they return to Joseph for a second time, here in Genesis 44 and verse 16, it says, Judah answered, oh my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. They are haunted by a stain a deep, deep guilt that they can't seem to scrub away. 20 years has not been able to scrub away the guilt of what they had done to Joseph. And this, my friends, is universal human experience. We all seem to have inside of us this standard, this moral code to which none of us can live up to. This is the very um, theme that C.S. Lewis first opens up on in his very famous book, Mere Christianity, Lewis, who was himself um, an atheist, then an agnostic, then a Christian, explains in his book, Mere Christianity, um, in a beautiful and very clear and colorful way, kind of the Christian idea, the biblical concept that we were made by a God that we've sinned against who's just and judges sin, but who sent his son Jesus to die on our behalf so that we could all be forgiven and made whole. He unpacks that in this book, Mere Christianity. And in his first chapter, he makes two points and he sums it up at the very end of that chapter in this way. He says this, these then are the two points I want to make. First, that human beings all over earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way. And they can't really get rid of that. We all have this feeling that we ought to behave in a certain way. We can't get rid of that feeling. And then secondly, that we do not in fact behave in that way, right? We know the law of nature and break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and about the universe that we live in. 
There is a universal human experience. We all have this sense that we ought to behave in a certain way, but none of us can live up to that innate sense within us. And when we cross that line, when we uh, say the things we ought not to say or we do the things that we ought not to do, there is this very real change, a shift, a mark, what David in Psalm 51 calls a stain. David, a very famous uh, uh, character from Israel's history and from the biblical history, uh, was famous for a lot of things, slaying Goliath, being a, a wise and a godly king, but he had terrible moral failures. And the Bible pulls no punches and shares with us the, the deepest of his brokenness and flaws. And in Psalm 51, David, uh, in a moment of repentance and brokenness over some terrible things that he had done, he writes this way, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, for it haunts me day and night. And we all know what this feels like to be haunted by the sins of our past, to be haunted by those things of which we are now ashamed. There are at least two common reactions that we have to this experience. When we start to remember our shame, when we start to feel that guilt again, we tend to fall into one of two camps. One of us, some of us, try to balance out the karmic scales. We try to either in actions or in kind of reframing our perspective on our lives, try to come up with enough good to outweigh our bad. You know what I'm talking about. This is one of the ways that we numb that sense of guilt is by saying, well, uh, yeah, sure, I blew it here, but I'm also this and this and this. And we try to, to put enough cumulative good that can outweigh the cumulative bad that has come out of our lives. This was the very road that C.S. Lewis himself took when he tried to essentially uh, debate his way out of believing in God. Lewis's story is very interesting. His mother died when he was young. His first religious experience was praying that his mother would not die. And when she died, it sent him on a, uh, a very difficult journey. How do you believe in a God who would take a boy's mother, right? And that was the beginning of his atheism. Uh, he was then uh, a bright mind, uh, wooed by uh, the academic world, uh, many of whom leaders in that academic world were not believers in God. And they reinforced his belief that there is no silly idea of this you know, God out there in the universe. Uh, but as he began to grow older and older in his adult years, he began to really wrestle with things like this stain. Why do I feel the way that I do when I do the things that I ought not to do? Why can't? Why is it inescapable? Why can't I get uh, ahead of this thing? So as he begins to wrestle with this, in his book, Surprised by Joy, where he describes his journey of becoming a Christian, he writes this way. It's very funny. He says, amiable agnostics, which is about one of the cutest phrases I've ever heard of. Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I was then, they might as well talked about a mouse's search for a cat. He was not in any way looking for God. He didn't want God to exist. He said, I had always wanted above all things not to be interfered with. I wanted to, to call my soul my own. That's where he was in life. Um, but he felt that an attempt at complete virtue must be made. Here was his, his argument. If I could just be good enough that I don't have to deal with, maybe there is a God and maybe there is a judgment day. But if I can be at least a decent human being, well, then I don't have to worry about judgment day, right? 
So then he goes on to say this, of course I could do nothing. I couldn't last one hour. For the first time in my life, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there, what I found appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. Here was Lewis's experience. If I could just be good enough, maybe my good cannot weigh my bad, and I don't have to deal with a guilty conscience anymore. And then maybe if there is some kind of a judgment day, I can at least rest well at night knowing that I'm generally a good person. Here's the thing. If we stop to consider who we really are, if we stop to really take account of our good and of our brokenness, there is one very true dominant theme that will envelop each and every one of us in that examination, that we are far dirtier and far more broken than we would ever dare let ourselves believe. And that was the experience that C.S. Lewis had. It's what Paul describes in Romans 7 when he says this, I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. And I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyways. All of us fail to live up to the own standard of our own moral compass. None of us can find enough willpower to muster up enough good to outweigh the depth of our brokenness. So some of us, when we feel guilty, we start thinking about all of the good things we might be able to put on the other side of the scale. There's another reaction to guilt, and that is believing, conceding to the idea that we're just cursed. Here's how this works. This is where the brothers were. When you've you know, done enough you know, really horrible things, when you've really hurt people, and then later on in life, some terrible circumstances start to evolve, it's, it's inescapable for some of us to tie those two together and say, I'm finally getting what I deserve. The shoe has finally dropped, right? There are so many who believe that what they've done is unforgivable, that the, the, the mistakes that they've made, they will never be able to be free from. They are just now the victims of their own uh, poor decisions. And for those, their goal is not to find some way to, to, to find peace in their minds. They just simply want to hide from other people. Their greatest goal is to just minimize the amount of people who know the shameful things that they've done and just brace for impact as they wait for the other shoe to drop. These are, and I'm sure there are other ways, but these are the two ways that I think a lot of people respond to guilt and to a stain-filled conscience. We either try to outweigh our, our bad with our good or we simply concede to the idea that we're cursed. Here's the truth about our condition. I think the picture is painted very well in the lines of this song. Have you heard this one? One of these days we will all stand in judgment for every single word that we've spoken. One of these days we will all stand before the Lord and give a reason for everything that we've done. And what I've done is trust in Jesus, my great deliverer, my strong defender, the Son of God. We are haunted by the idea that this nagging suspicion that one day we will face consequences for the unjust things that we've done. That nagging suspicion is true, but it is not the whole truth. One day, each and every one of us will be face-to-face -face with the one who made us. And on that day, we will either face the just consequences for what we have done, or we can right now put our faith and our trust in a way that he has made 
for us to be truly forgiven and made new. God the Father who made us, against whom we sin, sent his son Jesus to come into this world to take our place underneath the just punishment for the sins that we deserve so that God could both punish our sins justly and make us free, forgiven. Isaiah 53 puts it this way. Jesus was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. There is no amount of karmic good that can outweigh our karmic debt. Nothing, can, nothing that we can muster up within ourselves can truly heal us or make us whole where we are broken. But Jesus' death and his resurrection from the dead can make us whole and can heal us. I like how Paul puts it in Colossians 2. He says that we were dead because of our sins and because of our sinful nature. But then God made us alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins. These are some of the most precious words. In verse 14 of Colossians 2, he says, God canceled the record of the charges against us. There is a record. But that record, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul says it, has been taken away by God nailing it to the cross. For those of us who tend to gloss over our history and think about our karmic good, we need to wrestle with the fact that we are broken beyond what we would ever dare believe. But for those of us who tend to concede to the idea that we're cursed, need to believe that there is a God whose love is stronger than death, that there is a Savior whose grace is stronger than our sin, and that this Jesus thing about being forgiven and made new is real. There is a way to be made whole and to be made clean. The Bible describes this clearly. In in Romans 3, Paul writes, he says, We are made right with God, not by trying to outweigh our bad with our good, but by simply placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And I love how he writes, he says, And this is true for everyone, everyone who believes. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how deep and how wide and how dark and how long your soul has been stained, uh, and in one passage, God invites us and says, come though your sins be as, as rich as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. It's the truth. And then it's, it's a once and done forever thing for our souls eternally. When we put our faith in Jesus, we never have to fear the punishment from God for our sins. But as we continue to try to walk with the Lord, we're still very broken people. He begins a process of transforming us. But um, Christians are not perfect people. Every day we find new ways to need his mercy. And yet still he invites us. In 1 John, he says, if we confess our sins to him, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to not just forgive us of our sins, but to also cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. These brothers who were standing before Joseph had no idea. They couldn't have because human history hadn't unfolded. Jesus Christ had not yet come But the very same God who was orchestrating all of these events together ultimately for their good is the very same God who has put Jesus Christ in human history so that all of humanity would have hope for true clearing of our guilt. There is a way to have a clear conscience and not by lying to ourselves 
and not by uh, simply conceding to the idea that we're cursed, but by finding true forgiveness and true healing in the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. A couple of closing thoughts. Um, as Christians, we're just as susceptible to falling prey to these bad ideas about a guilty conscience. Um, it's not just unbelievers or those who are not yet Christians who try to add up their karmic good to outweigh their karmic bad. Um, I don't know which of the two you were before you came to Christ the try to do more good, uh, you know, try to get off the naughty list, or the person who says, I'm incurably on the naughty list. But we tend to take whoever we were before we were Christians into our Christianity, and we either deceive ourselves over the depth of our need for repentance and forgiveness daily, or we live uh, believing a lie that we are un, uh, cursed without hope. We're just always going to be the kind of people who we are today. Those are very powerful lies that are still very much trying to be an influence in our lives today as Christians. So as we look at this passage and we think of these these brothers, we stop and ask ourselves, how is our conscience? Do we have a clear conscience before the Lord? And if we don't, then repent, then confess, then come to the Lord. Don't run from him. You don't have to be scared of him. But don't lie to yourself as if you don't need that forgiveness. Every day that we spend either pretending that we're better than we are or running away from the God who loves us is one day that we did not have to spend suffering either in our ignorance becoming more and more the kind of person we never want to be or suffering under the needless lie that we are somehow unworthy of the love that God has for us. We are unworthy. We were never worthy to begin with. Not one of us, not for one day, have to suffer distanced from God either by our, our self-lies or by our uh, untrue sense of curse. Today, if we do not have a clear conscience, today is a day to say, Lord, I want to be made right. I want to be made clean again. Would you please forgive me of this sin? Confess our sins to him. And he's faithful and he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My last thought for the morning, which was by far the most beautiful from this passage for me, was this. Think of this. The brothers are sitting there. They're in front of Joseph. They think their world has literally just imploded. They know there is no hope for them. If they go back to their dad and tell them, tell their dad that Benjamin has been lost to Egypt forever, that their dad's, uh, their lives are over. Their family's life is over. I mean, this is the worst possible fate that they could imagine. They are sitting here in the middle of this circumstance thinking that what they're experiencing is punishment for their sins. When in reality, do you know what God is really up to? This God who they thought was this whip-driving, uh, vindictive, authoritarian, was actually, through all of these circumstances, rescuing them. Think about this. Why are they in Egypt? They're in Egypt because God is ultimately going to use this turn of events to save their family. God is not this, he's far more complex than we make him out to be. He is not just a scorekeeper. He's not just a, a judge who is scowling at us as we live these imperfect and broken lives, whipping us when we get out of line and you know, giving us a dirty look, smoldering and in rage over our inability to somehow grow up. That's not the God of this, this Bible. Yes, 
Sin's a big deal. And yes, he is just and he judges sin. But the same God who judges sin is the same God who is turning the world upside down to be great and gracious to this family. The God of Joseph, the God of the Old Testament, the God of this Bible is a God who is just and he judges sin. But he is far more loving, far more rich and wonderful than we could ever dream. You see, we're guiltier than we would ever dare believe, but we are loved far greater than we could ever dare hope. When we leave here this morning, I hope and pray that you really do believe that your guilty conscience is something that you should listen to. But don't believe the lie that you can outdo your bad with good. It's a hopeless cause. And don't fall prey to the lie that you are somehow cursed beyond repair. In Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness, there is freedom, there is cleansing in every single one of our lives. I'll close reading the words of David out of Psalm 51. I think these words paint in so many ways the brushstrokes of this scene in our time together this morning. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be white, whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Here's our prayer this morning. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. You don't desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Oh God, let's pray. Lord, we are truly grateful to know that there is hope for each and every one of us, even in spite of our brokenness. There's not one of us here who is a stranger to the, the haunting of a guilty conscience. Each and every one of us has inside of us this unmistakable uh, standard, a code to which none of us can live up to. We all fall short. We all fail. We all have things for which we are now ashamed. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to believe, to really, truly believe that though our sin is a big deal, that your love is an even bigger deal, that you genuinely do desire for us to experience healing and forgiveness, transformation, for our guilty consciences to truly be not just covered up, but cleaned and made new. Lord, you know each and every one of us where we are. And I pray that this morning there would be a very real exchange between us and between you. And that we would take advantage of this time to press in closer to you. For those who don't yet know you, that today would be the day that they believe in faith that Jesus Christ truly did live and die and rise from death for them. And that today for the very first time, they could experience the relief of no longer having to find some way of, of outdoing their bad with some measure of good or to come out from underneath 
the concession to the curse, but that today they would experience freedom and life, and life anew in you. And for all of us who are here, who have believed and do believe, Lord, I pray that you would teach us to keep close accounts with you, that we would this morning be genuine and open and honest and take stock of where we are, and that today we would experience what John expressed, that as we confess our sins, that you will be faithful. You will be just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Lord, would you make good use of this time and help us to make good use of this time. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.